Thank you for joining this uh, this weekly AMA. I think most of you guys have been with us on many Fridays, and I really appreciate everyone who's uh, been a long-term holder and, and sticking with us. It's been, uh, as, as everyone I think knows, a little bit turbulent the past couple of weeks with our decision to uh, pause the V1 vault and go all in on an improved V2 vault suite of products. And um, I imagine all you guys are very keen to get some updates on that, which will be forthcoming during this AMA. Um, before getting into that, I'll just highlight a few sort of general uh, general developments, uh, things we've been working on over the past couple weeks. Um, maybe a little bit of price talk as well. Um, never financial advice, of course, but we'll share just some general observations. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe we will start with that. I mean, I think that anyone who's a long-term holder, um, I'm sure we actually probably got quite a few new holders as well over the past uh, couple weeks, but, you know, certainly long-term holders know that in, you know, the starting on the first, um, which is when we unlock our stakers, you know, those who are in marinate or compound are able to unstake and at that point, you know, exit umami if they're so inclined. Um, you know, we do that the first of every month. And, you know, I think as anyone who's been, you know, with us for a few months knows, you know, this probably isn't your first rodeo. There's always a, uh, some, some either profit taking or just general, um, exiting from umami holdings on the first by stakers. And that always has, Near-term impacts on price, you know, our team, uh, you know, particularly our DeFi strategists, treasury managers, Wen Moon and Stephen T put a lot of effort into, you know, making our Uniswap V3 pool, which is buttressed by our, our treasury's own liquidity, um, as liquid as possible. But we're still, you know, liquid micro cap token, um, you know, no, no amount of good LP management will, you know, make it a zero slippage trade for large blocks of umami. And so, you know, I think we were, everyone who's been in the discord was expecting some downward pressure on price uh, on the first as a result of the unlock. And, you know, we've seen that. Now, this is where I think this line of discussion gets more interesting. I, I will tell you, um, you know, from the team's perspective, you know, from the perspective of the protocol itself, these kinds of sell-offs are actually not a bad thing. They're also not a bad thing for long-term holders who are stacking. Um, as you guys know, this never has any adverse effect on the ETH payouts to marinators or the um, yield in, in umami for compounders. That, that actually rises. The APR rises when price falls because the income stream in ETH is the same. So our long-term holders are not adversely affected. In fact, you know, for those who have been DCAing in, I know that you know these unlocks on the first of the month or tend to be seen as juicy buy opportunities by the community. And we sort of see a, you know, steady rollover from sort of, I, I probably, you know, either people who just have liquidity needs and so have to exit or people who maybe are just looking for more of a short term trade. You know, there tends to be rotation from that group of holders to people with long term conviction. And um, that's one of the reasons that we're fine with these sell offs on the team level, just so that you guys know, it is in effect um, in a variety of ways, a transfer of, um, it's a wealth transfer in a sense from, you know, the more short-term lower conviction holders or holders who uh, need to exit for some reason to long, long-term, you know, high conviction holders. And that's not something we're 
you know, necessarily going to say is a bad thing, right? Because that's our core community that's, that's benefiting, um, you know, during these periods of drops in price on the first. That, that's not to say that at some point we won't change the structure just to kind of smooth out price performance over time. But doing that would probably involve redeploying the marinating compound contracts, which would be, you know, disruptive and then take time um, from our devs, you know, away from their focus right now, which is the V2 vault. So, you know, we're, we're fine with this because, again, it, it benefits the long-term holder community. It creates a good entry point, you know, for those who are DCAing in. And, you know, just as kind of for some general color on how, you know, the team and the project handle this, um, our goal at, at Umami is we, we do want the treasury itself to have a nice, um, a nice sort of base of, of Umami tokens in our treasury that we can use for future OTC deals if we ever need to, to raise capital as we continue to scale. Um, obviously, we would never OTC at the current price, but you know maybe maybe three x plus um, we would start to consider doing a small uh, capital raise. We have a very robust and healthy runway, but sooner or later, probably in twenty twenty three, we're going to be thinking about you know really scaling up operations once the B two vaults are launched. So we're thinking ahead to that time, and so you know when prices down like this, the uh, treasury you know as as we should as is our duty to. Um, the community, we, we provide ETH liquidity for those who want to exit, but that also means that we accumulate more Umami tokens at, you know, these very favorable prices. And so, you know, it's been pretty, if you look at our treasury performance, this is really important context. Um, you know, our, we just published our treasury report, Stephen T and Wen Moon pushed to the treasury report today. You can see that in our Discord announcements and also on our Twitter and you know, our treasury is looking very strong. We have 5.5 million in you know total treasury assets. That, of course, does not include the Umami tokens. Um, but more importantly for us, it's, we have four, $4.4 million in core runway assets. So that's, you know, liquid uh, ETH, BTC, and stables that, you know, we can use to, to finance our operations, you know, highly liquid and, you know, very you know, stable value tokens. We've exited most of our altcoin positions and concentrated on building out that runway. So, you know, our treasury is looking great. And with this sell-off um, in the Umami token on the first, that was an opportunity to reaccumulate um, a lot of Umami that had entered circulating supply at highly favorable prices. So you know, we have well over 150,000 Umami tokens on our balance sheet. Um, if prices stay low like this, we're going to continue to provide support liquidity um, in, in ETH and USDC for the Umami token, which is good for you know, all traders. But um, that'll also just mean that we'll continue to accumulate more Umami at very favorable prices. We'd love to see you know, more than 200,000 Umami tokens on our balance sheet, which uh, you, know, you could imagine um, is really, really robust dry powder for future OTC deals, um, which again, we wouldn't really consider at current prices at all, you know, it would probably need to be 3x plus for us to do that. So we're thinking ahead to, you know, having that really rich um, reserve of dry powder for our treasury, um, probably in 2023, if, if and when we do choose to do some capital raising. Um, and as you guys know, so I think all of you know, you know, we're very committed to um, very blue chip tokenomics, meaning that, you know, we have a max supply of 1 million tokens. 
we would never mint more tokens to raise capital. So these kinds of strategic open market operations are really important to us because we're never going to dilute our core holders with more token emissions. And that means that we really do need to rely on um, effectively what one might call balance sheet trading to reaccumulate umami at favorable prices and then use that to OTC when our price is back where, you know, closer to where we think it should be. So that's just a little context on the um, token price, you know, and for what it's worth, I'll share this. And this kind of segues into our the next topic that I really wanted to cover today. Transparency is really, really important to us. For those of you who are following us, I think you know that I, I don't think it's an understatement to say that we're leaders in the DeFi space, certainly among DAOs, such as, you know, such as ourselves, um, certainly for sort of micro cap projects in transparency. And it's something that, you know, we have been committed to, but are just building on um, with every passing week. So, you know, as part of that, I, I think some of you guys know, I personally, this is, you know, DeFi Alpha um, or, or Alex O'Donnell talking here. I have shared in the resources page in Discord, sort of my personal Umami wallet, um, and that's sort of part of a broader push to really, you know, the truth is we've been we've been extremely scrupulous, very focused on ethics um, since the start. Um, you know, since since I took over as project lead and we launched V2, it's been a major major focus for us. Um, and you know, I don't think, frankly, we've done enough to you know make that make the market aware of that because I think that you know DeFi operates in an environment of you know, tremendous information asymmetry and relatively low trust overall between communities and teams. And, you know, here we are, you know, having always made a commitment to doing things, you know, in a very, very ethical way. And so, frankly, it just makes sense for, you know, our project to kind of get credit for that by showing, making it more accessible to the community, um, you know, the way that we conduct ourselves and, and our commitment to long-term values. So within that context, we've actually been taking quite a few steps just the past week to really display some of the uh, the values that guide us and, you know, provide the concrete evidence of sort of how we approach these things. So as I mentioned early on, I think this was two weeks ago, I, I made my personal wallet public. And subsequent to that, we've shared quite a few things, which I'll go over briefly. And, and I encourage you guys to check it out. So if you go on our docs, you'll see just in the past week, we added um, the full language of the contract between Umami Labs and Umami DAO. So for those of you guys who don't know, obviously you guys as holders are the owners of Umami DAO. Umami DAO is represented off-chain by Umami DAO Foundation, which is a Cayman Islands-based foundation that you know, provides you guys collectively with uh, legal representation. And that foundation is in a contract with Umami Labs LLC, which is the U.S.-based tech company um, that I'm the CEO of and that the rest of the team here is employed by. And, and that services agreement is public, and you can see that um, in our docs. And so it outlines you know, the, the ways that we, as the team at Umami Labs, serve you as the Umami DAO community. Um, it makes very clear, as you'll see, that... You know, we, are, we work for you. We are contractually bound to be your fiduciaries. We are contractually bound to honor, honor snapshot votes. Um, and it is for that reason, in fact, that we are contractually legally bound, just so that you know, to never increase um, 
the max supply of tokens above 1 million, except in very specific circumstances, which are outlined in our, a recent, relatively recent community snapshot that is public for you guys to see. Um, so that's, you know, useful context. Um, and then, you know, along with that, we also share now, and you can see this also in our docs, our monthly invoices from the Mami Labs to Mami Dow for uh, the, the largely teen comp as well as some other fixed OPEX expenses. There are certain um, variable expenses that come from the Dow Treasury. So if you look at our um, monthly treasury uh, report, which again went out today by Wen and Steven, you'll see our overall OPEX figure as well as fixed OPEX, and you can confirm that by checking out the invoices that we now make public from Umami Labs to Umami Dow each month. Um, and just as a quick reference, our, our fixed OPEX, so comp and some other you know, core business expenses is less is approximately two hundred thousand dollars a month in, in keeping with what we have shared with you guys. So, you know, again, I, I just think that this is the sort of thing that more projects should be doing. Of course, you know, we are also a doxed team almost almost entirely. A few folks are doxed internally to us um, through contracts they've signed with Umami Labs, but haven't uh, matched their Twitter handles to their name yet. But the most of a majority of us are fully doxed. So. You know, again, this is something that I myself personally have been pretty outspoken about, um, just the importance of increasing trust and transparency in DeFi. It's something that everyone on the team is really committed to, and we want to be leaders in this area. We think that, you know, while privacy and, and decentralization and sort of the option to operate anonymously for holders and community members is really crucial to what DeFi is all about, and it's in keeping with kind of the core ethos of censorship resistance that's so central to DeFi. Um, the teams themselves, since we're you know taking on this role of being custodians of of community funds and, and assets, and you know this responsibility to generate value, we think that the team should step up to the plate and you know be transparent. This is who we are. This is our actual identities. Here's the services contracts we operate under, um, and you know we we want to open that up to you. So you know the the other thing I'll just add that. Um, we are doing, which we're you know also proud of, is we've also made public in our docs um, our token sale policy. So we are not one of these teams that would ever trade against our community. We have really clear restrictions um, barring team members. Team members actually have to notify um, the the management team at Umami Labs if they plan to do large sales. Um, they are prohibited from doing any sales of tokens that would be informed by material non-public information um, so that they can't front-run the community at the community's expense. We would never permit that. Um, and generally speaking, we actually don't trade, we don't and can't trade in and out of the Umami token because every time a team member purchases a token, they're required to hold it for 60 days before they can liquidate it. So that, that is effectively a way to bar trading, which would be frankly too easy for us to do. We could buy every on the first of every month when there's a dump, sell at the top. That frankly wouldn't even be bad um, in terms of its impact on the token price. It would probably smooth it out, but it's not who we are. We, we don't want to ever advantage ourselves in any way um, over our community. And, you know, th those of you who followed us for a long time know that you'd see me griping the discord about waiting for the vault to unlock so I can deposit into it. And that's because we're not giving ourselves special privileges over our community. So I wanted to share that. And I know Grumpy is going to put together, um, you know, a nice thread and overview of all these different things as a reference. Um, so, you know, with those kind of key points out of the way, I think I wanted to use 
the rest of you know my time here um, before we open it up to questions. Just to highlight sort of where we're at with the V2 vaults, I'm sure that's you know what everyone's most interested in, um, and some of our growth catalysts over you know the next couple months, and more generally, just some thinking about sort of how we're feeling as a team, um, and you know how we are thinking about you know our our future in the near, relatively near future over the next one or two quarters at Umami. Um, so let's start with. You know, the, just as you guys know, the, the recent context on the V1 vaults, um, we've been really transparent, as always, about sort of our reasoning behind pausing them. Um, we reimbursed all of our depositors fully, including the cost of the deposit fees so that everyone was made whole. And I mean, I mean we managed to do that and still perform very well um, in terms of our treasury um, this month. So, so we're very pleased with that. And, you know, for those of you who aren't aware, you can review our Medium post, and it's in our announcements channel in Discord, highlighting the specific reasons that we paused V1. I won't spend too much time on that today, um, but basically, it's very straightforward that, you know, we had certain targets in terms of, you know, risk-adjusted performance for those faults, and, you know, a confluence of factors that had to do with the some, some underperformance of the tracer, perpetual pool hedges, um, and somewhat higher than expected technical overhead and execution risk tied up with managing those very complex hedging positions made us decide that you know we we could have still tracked towards positive returns for that vault, but that on a risk-adjusted basis, when you factor in technical risk as well as just kind of you know the some some features of the perp pools with respect to performance in volatile markets that it just wasn't the product that we wanted it to be that we were you know we would never ask our depositors to um, use a product that we weren't convinced was you know the best possible iteration of you know the strategy we were we were developing so that's why we paused it and we at the time that we paused it we had already just you know from kind of the final stages of live testing the V1 vaults come up with a pretty exciting list of improvements and changes that we could make in a V2. And initially the plan was to, you know, we were going to launch this V1 vault for USDC, follow it up with two additional V1 vaults. So vaults that used the tracer hedge strategy um, that would be for BTC and ETH. And then we would move on to the V2 vaults. And frankly, and this is a really important point that I want to impress upon those who are listening, being able to pause the V1 and thereby freeing our team of devs and, and strategists from the day-to-day -day responsibility and time and bandwidth commitment of monitoring that vault and, you know, endlessly, you know, constantly debating, you know, how, how can we improve this? You know, is, can we push this update or that update? You know, checking and rechecking data. All of that was an enormous suck on team bandwidth. And the fact that we paused it and have decided to go straight to V2s instead of first doing the V1 ETH and BTC was a huge win over even just the medium term for Umami. Because, you know, we are going to be able to execute on what we believe is a far superior and far more scalable strategy much more quickly because we're not bogged down in day-to-day -day maintenance of the V1s, which from the start, we knew were not as scalable 
as the V2s could be. And you know, if you're familiar, we've shared this in other contexts. We our target, just a relatively near-term target at Umami, is to accumulate TBL in our vaults of 100 to 150 million, um, which would make us, you know, we, we would be running at a net operating profit. We would be hitting, you know, certain targets internally that we have for yield to our marinators from the vault fee revenue. Um, we would be also able to grow and reinvest in our treasury to become, you know, sustainable long term. And so that's really a critical inflection point is getting to that 100 million to 150 million TBL benchmark. And the V2 vaults, which I'll talk about in a bit more detail in a moment, you know, are, are far better equipped to get us quickly and sustainably, um, and, you know, in a far less risky way from a strategy perspective to that goal. So we are now, you know, full steam ahead on the V2 vaults, and I'll, I'll share a few updates on that with you guys now. Um, right now, and th this is not a hard deadline, we try to avoid that because development takes time, backtesting takes time, auditing takes time, and these are not things you'd ever want to rush if it's not worth it. But you know, based on our current assessment of our development timeline, we think late November is a very realistic target to go live with these vaults. And, you know, that launch, to be clear, this is something I don't think the market is fully processed. This is not just to launch a new USDC vault. This is to launch USDC, BTC, ETH, um, and actually the, the way this new strategy works, we will have vaults for all of the GLP assets. So that also includes Chainlink and Uni, um, as well as the option to deposit independently into the different stablecoin assets, USDC, USDT, um, FRAX, and DAI. Um, we, we are positioning this product to really emphasize and underscore, um, you know, a vault just for, for stablecoins in general that can zap in any stable and, you know, where you get out whatever you want and gives you exposure to, you know, the full stablecoin portfolio of GLP. That's the highest TVL um, capacity stablecoin vault strategy. And so, you know, we're going to foreground that and we expect that to be what attracts most institutional investors that want stablecoin exposure simply because of its scalability and it'll probably be yield optimized as well. Um, but we will have deposit options independently for the different stablecoin vaults. And then, you know, of course, we'll have a BTC and ETH vault and then we'll have, you know, much lower TVL, um, probably, you know, more popular among DeFi native vault options for the chain link and the, uh, Uniswap tokens in GLP. But, you know, just, just to be clear, you know, that what we were going to be really advertising and marketing and foregrounding with going into this vault launch will be BTC, ETH, and stables. BTC, ETH, and stables. That's, you know, our core product strategy. We have spent a lot of time um, on market research, doing informational interviews with institutional investors, really focusing on what you'd call crypto curious institutional investors rather than just that small pool of DeFi native hedge funds. Um, and the feedback's pretty unanimous. You know, they want some exposure to BTC and ETH. They don't know about, don't understand, are a little wary of altcoins. And, you know, of course, stablecoin yield is very attractive, particularly, you know, in the current market environment we're in. So, you know, we, so just to, to make this really clear, because I, I realize I might have been a little confusing with all the details I just threw at you guys. 
we will be launching simultaneously all of our vaults. We will be marketing and launching and scaling simultaneously ETH, BTC, and USDC. And right now, based on soft internal estimates, not something we're going to commit to formally, we think that late November is very realistic. And that's what we're targeting. At Q4, which of course ends December 31st, so any time between October 1st and December 31st, is you know the general time frame that we have formally committed to for launching these products. Um, one really important thing, and I think a lot of folks have observed this, our front end currently is not where we want it to be long term. The front end that you see if you go to umami.finance is not, you know, we, we like it. It's a huge improvement of what we had. If you guys, anyone here is an OG remembers, you know, when I first started as project lead and the current team started to join. We had a very different front end, and my God, we've come a long way. But it's it's still not as sophisticated and as professional as we want it to be. We want this to be a portal to you know to be visibly for the user, a portal to a you know an institutional grade blue chip DeFi protocol with you know some of the most carefully back tested, uh, most rigorously modeled, and thoroughly audited uh, you know yield generating options for blue chip cryptos and stables, right? That's what we want the experience to be on the front end. We have a really detailed and you know nicely done um, Figma, design Figma for the V1 and our new um, front end lead, Gray Pixel. It's just doing an amazing job of you know moving that through. He's already got a lot of ideas for improving it even further. We worked with the multi-farm team to build a detailed dashboard for the V1 vaults, and we're going to repurpose that because it is composable for the V2 vaults and then integrate that into our front end. So what we expect to have by the time this process is complete is going to be an individualized portal um, that will show you all of your different asset holdings on Umami, kind of uh, you know, kind of like a Zerion, but just for Umami. It will take into account our target market of institutions um, and therefore you know we've actually talked with some some big four accountancies about you know some of the the needs for you know properly accounting for uh, you know gains from these sorts of asset allocations you know, basically it's the the gap framework that would be used for lending and we're going to integrate that into the UX so that people can you know if you're an institution, you can actually get up-to-date information that you can pass on to your mid-office accountant, um, which is really important for institutional adoption because they need to be able to report on their returns and their and their quarterly reports for their investors. So these are that that project of creating this revamped V1 front end is going on simultaneous to the product strategy and back-end engineering team moving full steam ahead on the actual vault products. Um, and just for a little additional color that, you know, we're really proud of, you know, one thing, and, and this kind of speaks, I think, to the competitive landscape more broadly. I'm just, I'm, I'm going to be frank, right? There, there's a lot of protocols out there talking about Delta neutral vaults, right? Just kind of like real yield. I mean, we initiated the term real yield after creating, you know, I would argue, some of the most blue chip tokenomics in DeFi. And the DeFi space ran with it. And that's great because we want to have a positive influence on the space, right? But of course, as 
projects, you know, run with it and claim, oh, we're, we're real yield, we're real yield. Um, a lot of tokenomics that really are not so blue chip, that might have, you know, hidden dilution, for example, or not truly sustainable tokenomics are, you know, touting the hashtag real yield moniker. And that's fine. That's to be expected. We're seeing, you know, more of a debate going on about what really is or isn't real yield. And that's exactly what should be happening, right? You know, it's good that people are trying to live up to this, but now we need to set the bar high for what it means. We're seeing the same thing now with, um, with Delta Neutral vaults, right? If you guys remember, if you were with us for a while, um, we early on in the marketing process for the V1 vaults, we dropped the term Delta neutral, we would say near Delta neutral or market hedged or Delta minimized. And we ultimately just called our vaults USDC vaults. And the reason for that is that true Delta neutrality is really, really hard to achieve. Um, we think that this vault strategy that we're launching, and I'm not going to give away so much alpha that, you know, it's a playbook for someone else to build the same thing, but for specific reasons that have to do with the fact that we're launching all vaults for all GLP tokens simultaneously, and the fact that therefore these vaults can be counterparties to each other with much reduced reliance on external hedges, we think that our strategy can achieve something that we might say is close to delta neutral. But if you're trying to manage hedges in real time in response to a volatile market, you know, when dealing with a portfolio of assets like GLP, where the mixes are constantly changing, you're not ever going to be perfectly delta neutral. So I think just one thing I want to flag is you know, be wary of anyone kind of touting, oh, we have a delta neutral strategy. Um, oftentimes, you know, if you look under the hood, it's nothing close to that. And it's really hard to achieve. And it requires essentially what we're doing, which is ridiculously detailed modeling, back testing, very sophisticated analysis, very sophisticated keeper bots in order to maintain those positions and some kind of grand strategy such as we're doing with the vaults being counterparties to each other to reduce net reliance on external hedges. Otherwise, you can't do it. And, you know, I, I think that I've gotten some questions from community members. Are we worried that, you know, the cat is out of the bag, if you will, and, you know, so many other projects are glomming into sort of, you know, delta neutral vaults. Some are building on GLP, some are using other strategies that we are, you know, somehow threatened about kind of our market share. And the answer to that is a resounding no. We have the privilege of, frankly, having no competition in our space. We have none. There is none. And we're not worried about time to market in the way that we would be if we were peddling a commoditized or commoditizable product. We can take our time to create a very rigorously back-tested, audited product that you know we're highly confident in because once it launches it's what we're launching will really it, it just won't have peers because it's so difficult to do this right and and for some added context around that we are working with um really senior level wall street traders the investment banks that you know to guide our team on fully internalizing the modeling and backtesting process so that we can use far more data. You know, now that we're using only GLP as well as some GMX per patches, 
we have way more extensive back testing data because of the lifetime that GMX has been operating. And so we can try, you know, many different market conditions as well as simulate market conditions um, and, and be really certain that the strategy will perform as we expect. You know, again, we have a really strong team now, much, much stronger than we did when we initiated the V1 vault product process, uh, product development process. Um, including some very, very sophisticated quants, and yet we're also working externally with um, senior-level Wall Street quants to you know double-check and vet the strategy. And that's what it takes if you want to have the kind of you know scalable product that can actually deliver as promised, that has realistic expectations grounded in backtesting, that can scale to the 150 million plus TPL that we're talking about. Um, so I think that's, you know, hopefully useful context. I think, you know, the TLDR here, because I know that, you know, we've just covered a lot, is there's inevitably, and we knew this at the time, some, you know, market FUD around the fact that we paused the vault. I think the fact that we paused it, that we were highly transparent about our reasons, that we reimbursed our depositors and made them whole, including on fees, that we are going to publish an in-depth post-mortem, going through everything in even greater detail, all ultimately speaks very well long-term for Umami. I think that the fact that we're able to expedite the process of shipping the V2 vaults is massively bullish, and that frankly it would have been quite bad for us if we remained bogged down in the clunkier V1s. And if that distracted us from moving forward on V2, now we can have this very um, aggressive but doable target of you know late November for shipping vaults for BTC, ETH, and stables all at once. And we're just highly, highly confident in the fact that you know, along with being way more transparent, way more conscious of regulatory compliance than really any other protocol. Of, of our size and of our, you know, stage and, and development. You know, we, we also have put way more thought into product market fit and long-term scalability. You know, another quick note is that we're working with someone who is, you know, a very well-established institutional investor to scope out on a granular level what a, what a really thorough go-to-market strategy to target, you know, crypto curious institutional investors, you know, largely private wealth managers, um, will look like, and you know, the different little pain points they might have, and the ways that we can address that. So we have a really clear vision of where we're going, who our target market is, what our path to scalability is, and you know, how to get there um, with a level of rigor that just no one else is bringing to the table. Um, maybe just a final aside. You know, we've talked about regulatory compliant DeFi being kind of you know, core to. Our approach. Um, our attorney Alex G, our chief legal officer, is you know now really moving forward on some exciting ideas for exactly kind of how to position us, um, specifically our vaults in the U.S. market in a compliant way. So you know we're working on some registrations for a specific legal entity called Umami Advisors that will have um, the ability to market. These vault products in a regulatory compliant way. We've you know, talked to a number of securities law firms and confirmed that these particular vaults are actually a lending instrument 
from the perspective of U.S. regulators and not securities. So we're going to have a formal legal opinion from reputable law firm to that effect, um, which helps buttress the rest of the compliance strategy through Mommy Advisors. So I think I've thrown enough at you. Uh, that's a lot. Um, hopefully you can sense that we're feeling good. We're not at all deterred. We're not at all feeling down about you know the pausing of the vault. Um, we frankly see the low token price as an opportunity for Umami and for the Umami team um, and for long-term community members to stack. <laughs> and you know, I, I think a lot of people will be doing that. So with that, why don't we open it up to questions? I'm really excited to hear what you guys have to ask. Hey, Lex. Hey, Umami team. Hey, Umami community. Uh, thanks for bringing me up. Um, really love the uh, rundown there, Lex, for the... Uh, um, uh, just the updates as well as the further developments. Um, I had a question concerning, uh, so um, every other day there's always a exploit hack or of some sort um, within the DeFi space. Um, fortunately, Umami has not had to experience anything like this of nature, but um, could certainly be an attack vector, especially if Umami becomes successful um, with the V2 launch. How are you guys thinking about security? Great question. Um, so, first of all, you know, we feel good about our security as it currently stands. In that, you know, we were rigorously audited by Zokio, which is a tier one auditing firm. Um, our, you know, V one vaults passed with, you know, real pretty much flying colors. We got a score of ninety six out of one hundred, which is very high. They saw no major exploit risks. Um, they also reviewed Marinate and Compound. The only exploit risks that they saw had to do with uh, an NFT function that had been built at the time to accommodate you know, any future Umami NFTs and, and you know, related NFT utility if we launched them. Um, all we have to do to avoid that you know, being an issue is not launch NFTs. And at some point, we will be migrating to a new smart contract um, for those anyways, just as part of the normal process of periodically updating our core smart contracts. So, you know, we're, we're not worried about any major uh, exploit risks. That being said, I, I agree with you. The thing about exploits, as everyone knows, is that, you know, even, even audits from tier one auditors, they have a way of being, you know, leaky sips, right? There are still always the possibilities of risks um, in smart contracts, even after they've been pretty rigorously audited. So we have a member of our community, and, and I won't divulge anything about this individual um, personally, but, you know, someone who has really, really deep experience in cybersecurity, um, you know, decades of it, uh, and who specializes in that professionally, who we've, con you know, we're in the process of contracting with this individual to basically do an audit that goes well beyond just smart contract code audits. There are other attack vectors, um, such as, you know, just managing to get you know, relevant passwords to, you know, maybe team communications channels like Slack or, or Discord, um, you know, being able to imitate the, you know, Discord handle of the team member and use that to gain access to proprietary information or perms. There's all kinds of, you know, easily overlooked attack vectors that would not be picked up in a traditional audit. So, you know, of course, we're going to work you know, with Zokio again um, to do a very rigorous audit of the V2 vaults. But 
we are simultaneously going to be working with you know, this cybersecurity expert just on a contract basis to essentially try to you know see you know if he were you know a hacker or you know someone else who's trying to execute on some kind of exploit you know what are all the conceivable attack vectors he would look at and how do we prevent um, that kind of risk so you know long story short is that we're the, the thought you know if you ask me sort of what keeps me up at night or other folks on the team it is that fear if you know imagine you know mid 2023 we have hundreds of millions of TVL and even though we're audited there's some kind of overlooked you know seeming tail risk um, that you know someone can't exploit and does um, that that's a huge you know that weighs on our minds so we're going to proactively adopt you know the the best the, the most rigorous best practices that we can and we're, we're outsourcing that because you know even even really sophisticated devs like like ours you know still might not think about things you know from the perspective of a, of a true senior level cybersecurity expert so we'll, we'll share more updates on that but it's a major focus for us um that's really encouraging to hear uh and uh you know, on that note, right, like um, oftentimes we're finding that um, a lot of protocols are not being exploited at the smart contract level. Um, even Curve Finance, which is a DeFi blue chip, just their domain got um, hijacked just a few weeks ago. So these things are um, obviously very possible and even likely, especially as you become more and more successful. So I'm really glad to hear that uh, Umami are thinking about these kinds of things. And um, you guys know already, but like at the end of the day, like this uh, thing that um, the team is building and the community is supporting is only really as strong as its weakest link, whether it's the strategy or the security or whatever. Um, you know, any exploit on any of those ends ultimately will, you know, be a detriment to the final product. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I very strongly agree with that. And as, as I said, it, you know, this, it is a common mistake among DeFi protocols to think that an audit investigating smart contract risk alone is enough to de-risk protocols. There's no, there are hardly any protocols that are so decentralized that, you know, the front-end exploit or, you know, the, using uh, team emails or Slack channels uh, or Discord channels as an attack vector could not, you know, if that gave someone influence over the multi-sig, couldn't lead to problems. So we want to make sure that all of those potential vectors are very secure. Awesome. Thanks for that. I'm going to hop back down. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Um, so let me let me just read through the AMA questions, and I'll try and pick off those. So one is, what is the average volume spent from the Treasury for buybacks? Um, it's, it's a good question, but I'm going to just reframe, you know, the, the approach to that question a little bit in my answer. So these are not necessarily straight up buybacks. Um, we, it's really has to do with how we're managing our LP. So we have zones of relatively higher slippage and then zones where we're pro providing relatively more liquidity. We augment, um, our LP liquidity strategy using limit buys and limit sells, uh, on Chromatica. So, you know, we can set up uh, limit orders to buy Umami with ETH or USDC. We can also set up limit orders to sell Umami. And that's kind of, you know, part of a dynamic process of, you know, optimizing for just general trading liquidity on our exchanges, but also, you know, keep targeting different strategic goals. So, you know, when price is low, 
we do try to accumulate on net from our LP when price is high. Um, you know, when we were close to $40, we were starting to think really in the $45 to $50 range of setting, you know, thicker bands of umami limit cells to, to raise some additional treasury capital because that was a reasonable price for, you know, the level of revenue that we had. So, you know, my point is, I, it's not, we definitely are not committed to some specific volume of quote unquote buybacks and, you know, that wouldn't really be part of our strategy, but it's more just about optimizing our LP to take advantage of you know price, whether it's low or high, in ways that suit our long-term goals, um, which you know usually is about maximizing value of the treasury assets and you know accumulating umami when it's low and adding to you know our ETH, USDC, and BTC runway uh, when umami is trading well. So you know this person also asked about you know how that factors into hedging, and you know the answer is that we look at when we're thinking about hedging, we're looking at you know total ETH. And BTC, um, as well as altcoin exposure, excluding umami, in our treasury, and you know targeting a certain level of delta that varies based on market dynamics. So you know when Moon is leading that, and during you know the current kind of choppy bear market where we're going into the merge, we're you know thinking about being fairly hedged. And one of the ways that we're hedging now, which is different from what we used to do in the past is um, just holding more USDC on our balance sheet. So we have, uh, you can check the, for the exact number in Wen's treasury report, but something like $700,000 of just USDC on our balance sheet, and that excludes the USDC exposure we have through GLP. GLP is about 50%, well, not USDC, but stables. Uh, GLP is about 50% stables. So in other words, we're actually in a majority stables position right now, if you include the GLP, and that makes us feel really comfortable. Um, obviously, we're bullish on ETH long term, and after the merge, we expect to see positive price action for ETH. So we wouldn't want to have you know a 100% stables position right now. Um, but hedging is, is always top of mind, and I think you know those of you guys who followed us for a long time. I mean, we were one of the early uh, DAOs to really emphasize hedging our uh, treasury assets, which has served us incredibly well. Um, considering that we started doing that in March, you know, when ETH was still think what in the 4,000 or the high 3,000s. So we're going to stick with that. Um, so let me see if there's, you know, feel free, by the way, if anyone wants to raise their hand, they can. Um, in the meantime, I will see if there's other questions uh, that I can answer from AMA questions in chat in our Discord. And, and if you're not in our Discord, we have a link to this that uh, Grumpy tweeted out just recently. Um, and you can hop on our Discord, go to the AMA questions channel and, and ask away. Um, here's a question saying, is V2 going to be more automated? It's an interesting way to phrase it. Um, I mean, V1 was automated. We had a keeper bot that followed a specific algorithm for the hedging allocations. We were not, there was never any point where the multi-sig was, you know, spitballing it and, you know, using some kind of, you know, fully custodial active management approach to hedging. There was always an algorithm, um, and there will be for this one as well. I think the short answer is that you know the V2 vaults will be fully automated and non-custodial, and that's one of the reasons that we are so um, obsessively and rigorously backtesting the hell out of the model that we're going to use for the automation. Because once it's live, um, it will need to be self-sustaining. Oh, will it be less time-intensive on the team? Oh, you know that's a good. Okay, so sorry. Um, the person's clarifying their question that you know V1 was a big time suck for the team. Um, and that you know, he's asking, will V2 be as much of a time suck? 
So realistically, I, I was talking with um, a, a, a VC investor that holds Simamami earlier today, actually, about this topic. Um, my, our expectation is that, you know, for roughly the first month after we launch V2, we're going to maintain a low TVL cap, um, not not because we need to, not because there's scaling challenges that, of the sort that we had in V1. Um, if you guys remember, V1 had some real issues with scaling because of the need to scale liquidity in the tracer pools. We don't have that problem with V2, but we'll st we're still going to just spend the first month um, really closely monitoring the uh, performance of the vault and keeping TVL relatively low while we do that, just as basic best practice. Um, I think the short answer to this question, you know, will it be time intensive? So although the smart contract code itself is immutable and, and non-upgradable, and therefore there's really nothing that can be done and nothing to you know, spend time on beyond a certain point, you know, once the uh, product is launched, the, the algorithm that you know, the key robot will use is, of course, upgradable. We can adjust that. So I think what I would expect is, you know, we'll be, we'll launch the product, we'll monitor performance obsessively, you know, pretty much full time for the first month. Um, you know, we'll still be beginning to progress on our next round of products as well, but we'll be putting a lot of bandwidth into monitoring the performance of V2. If we see anything that can be improved, which inevitably you do, you know, when you go live, because nothing's quite the same as it is in, you know, even live testing, let alone back testing. You know, then we will go ahead and you know make those upgrades to the keeper bot. Um, but you know our expectation is by front loading our our approach you know, during product development with you know far more back testing and rigorous modeling that you know we're going to see things perform really nicely and really smoothly after launch that there won't be nearly as much um, to have to do uh, in terms of you know upgrading or tweaking the model once it's live. Um, here's a question about OPEX um, at 250K monthly. Do you have more details on as to how this was calculated? Sure. I mean, so just to, to guide folks on that, and this is one of the reasons that we're trying to be, you know, even more transparent is because it's, it's easier if people can just kind of get all the information that they need. Um, basically, you know, we have fixed monthly OPEX of historically around, you know, $200,000 per Per month for for team comp and small amount for sort of basic um, you know sort of enterprise you know software platforms like Slack and Google Workspaces etc. Um, but then beyond that we have variable opex so we sometimes enlist we are listing a contract a really skilled contractor to uh, develop you know some some additional changes to our new front end which we're working on now um, and we pay him independently as a contractor that's variable not fixed auditors of course are variable um, we're contracting with you know the the individual I was describing earlier um, to you know we're contracting with someone for this rigorous sort of security audit on top of the you know smart contract audit um, so contracting with the uh, senior Wall Street trader to help you know guide us on internalizing back testing. So all those things go into the variable OPEX category. So, and just to be clear, 250K a month, we've never actually hit that. We've always been shy of that. We've been anywhere between, you know, high, you know, just sort of short of 200K per month to, you know, still south of 250K, maybe 235K. 
Obviously, we had a big expense in the past month associated with uh, reimbursing vault depositors. But, you know, basically, we're, we're always short of 250 per month, um, even when we factor in variable OPEX. And you can check the invoices that we post publicly uh, every month to see the fixed OPEX. Uh, one small thing that I'll flag that I didn't share previously is that the many people on the team, myself included, um, you know, once we closed down V1, we started thinking, you know, conservatively about expanding our runway. Currently, we estimate our runway, you know, covers us for 17 months. Um, but, you know, we want it to be as long as possible. So some members of the team agreed to swap, you know, up to half of their fiat or USDC comp for umami comp. Um, so just compensation in umami tokens, which, of course, they are required per their contract to hold for at least 60 days. Um, and that that reduces our OPEX even further. So I think we're down around 175000 per month in fixed OPEX. So, you know, we're feeling very comfortable about our ability to, to constrain OPEX and maintain our runway. One more question. When you closed V1, was the insurance contract with Risk Harbor triggered? No, no, it was not. I mean, that it would have only been triggered if the value of the vault tokens dropped below uh, effectively 95 cents, you know, with the initial deposit being one USDC. And that never happened. So there, there was no concern about that. And we plan to work with Risk Harbor um, for our V2 vaults. Someone's asking about whitelisting. Um, in other words, is the community going to be whitelisted for deposits into the vaults? Um, we're not sure yet, but because these vaults are so scalable, there might not be um, nearly as constrained of a, you know, TBL cap for these vaults, so it might not be necessary. But you know, we also said that we might just choose to have a low TBL cap for the first month. And if that's the case, then yes, we would definitely consider whitelisting the community first, of course. Um, now, I know we're getting on our hour. Anyone here want to ask questions in the in the main Twitter spaces? Anyone want to raise their hand and, and ask something before we wrap up? All right. I think we've covered pretty much everything and grumpy will our, our community mod grumpy will answer any unanswered questions and ama questions so i just want to thank you guys again you know we're feeling really good about everything really grateful to those of you who have uh, been sticking with us we couldn't be more excited about where we're going we've got really great things ahead and i can't wait to chat with you guys next week mm -hmm.